So I want to start with a question, but it's not the question that we're looking at in our passage tonight. The question is, is there anything more hopeless than getting exactly what you want? Think about that. Is there anything more hopeless than getting exactly what you want? It sounds like a weird question, right? Because of course not. Of course, it's not hopeless to get exactly what you want. Listen, this is a, an entertainment writer who, as far as I know, is not a Christian, uh, but her name is Cynthia Heimel, and she happened to know uh, a bunch of celebrities uh, before they became famous. And she said this. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize it isn't enough. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was gonna make everything okay, that was gonna make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. But these are people who got the one thing they had wanted their entire life. And you don't have to look very far for more interviews like this. I mean, if you've been in church for longer than like five seconds, you've seen the Tom Brady 60 Minutes interview where Tom Brady, the man you know, married to a supermodel and won multiple Super Bowls and just things are going well for Tom Brady. Uh, after winning all these Super Bowls, he said, there's, there's, gotta be, there's gotta be more than this. And maybe you're thinking, okay, they're famous people, they're athletes, whatever, and I'm not longing for the same things they are. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to survive, right? We got two weeks of school left, maybe like two and a half. And like, the only thing you want is just to make it through finals. Understood. Um, hashtag amen, right? Um, but think about that in the bigger picture, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you, you really, really wanted to, uh, to date somebody, and then, you, and then you finally date them and you realize like you, you don't like them at all <laughs> and you just feel terrible about that. How many of us have, have worked and, and, and busted our tails for an A only to turn around and have to immediately get back to work or to have somebody else sitting next to you got, got an A just a couple of points higher? I didn't get a lot of A's, so I don't know exactly how that works, but <laughs> I've heard it can be disappointing. How many of us commandeer a ship and do everything we can to get to Antarctica and then realize it's just a slab of ice? That's one of the plot points of Madagascar. But, um, <laughs> but the, y'all, the, the point stands. How many times have we gotten the thing that we longed for, the thing that we thought was going to make us okay, the thing that was going to satisfy our hearts and give us exactly what we needed, and it turned out to just be a huge disappointment? And how hopeless does that feel? And if this is all we have, if all we have are the things that we're working for, then everything is hopeless. And Paul actually makes that case in 1 Corinthians. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christians of all people are to be pitied. And so tonight, we're looking specifically, not just at the resurrection of the dead, but at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked last week, the question we asked last week was Jesus from the cross asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so tonight we're looking at this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
And remember, these questions are invitations for us to enter into what God is doing. They're not for God's benefit, but they're for ours. So why this question? And I'm gonna give the sermon away in one sentence because full disclosure, I, th- I think I wrote a really good sermon. I tell you that not to pat myself on the back, but to say that's usually when they're terrible. <laughs> so if it's bad, remember this, that we believe in the resurrection because it's true and because it changes everything. That if this is true, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it changes everything. So remember that if the rest of this is terrible. But we believe the resurrection because it's true. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's, a, it's an important question because here the angels are being literal. Like they're literally asking, why are you looking for an alive person in a graveyard? They're, they're looking for a dead man, but Jesus is not dead. And y'all, this is the central claim of Christianity. This is it. Again, I've already mentioned it. I'll mention it a couple more times. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if this one thing that happened is not true, then everything else that we're doing is pointless and we are hopeless. Um, there's, a, there's a theologian named Yaroslav Pelikan whose name is just really fun to say. Um, but he, says, he said that if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. And if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. And Tim Keller uh, goes a little further with that statement. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. When Tim Keller was a a college student, um, and by the way, I don't don't know that I put this in here. Um, A lot of this tonight is from um, uh, one of uh, Tim Keller's most recent book, uh, hope in time of fear. Highly recommend that book. Read it. Like read all of Tim Keller's books, but that one especially really good. But but in the book he tells a story in, in the 1970s where he's in an anti-war protest and everybody's there and they're protesting. Um, I think Nixon and the Vietnam War and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he showed up with the sign of this protest that said in all caps, "The resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying." It's maybe not what you expect to see in a war protest, but that's what he did. And and I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but it's actually intellectually less credible to believe that the resurrection was a giant hoax or it somehow didn't happen than to believe it did, right? Because every single explanation that's attempted to explain the resurrection away, it makes less sense than accepting that Jesus Christ was dead and now he's alive again. Think about it. Some people suggest that on the cross, Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of passed out and they put him in the tomb and then, he, and then he woke up. But that requires you to believe that these Roman soldiers who were trained killers, like who, who killed people the way that you guys like send Snapchat streaks, like that they, just, that they just missed that this guy wasn't dead. And then they put him in a tomb. And so this guy who's hung on a cross for hours lays in a tomb for three days and then is somehow strong enough to just roll the stone away and walk out. Others suggest that uh, the, the disciples stole the body, which suggests that a group of 11 scared morons could somehow steal a body from a grave guarded by these same trained killers and by more of them, by a whole garrison of them. Others suggest that uh, Jesus never actually rose again, but his followers were simply deluded into believing it, which suggests that a group of guys who are presented in the Bible 
as continually not believing it, uh, before they physically saw and touched Jesus, they were just confused and ended up starting a movement with no power whatsoever that eventually ended up overthrowing the Roman Empire. That they did all of that because of delusion. If you were making this up, you would have not written what the Bible writers wrote. You wouldn't have. Even down to, you wouldn't in that time have had women being the first people to discover the empty tomb. Because at the time, the, the, the statement of a woman was not admissible in court. It wouldn't have even been heard. And none of Jesus' friends believed it. Like in this story, they go and they're like, well, that, like the Bible says like, it seemed like idle tales. Like, I feel like an idle tale is just a really nice way of, it's kind of like the way we say like, oh, you know, like bless your heart, right? Like, 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 like it sounds nice, but you know, it's really being kind of like an idle tale is like, yeah, okay, you know. So if you, if you dismiss the resurrection of Jesus, then the burden of proof is on you to explain why the Christian church grew the way it did. It's on you to explain that no other, why no other Messianic group in the history of the world believed that their leader rose from the dead. It's on you to explain why a group of Jews who would have never imagined worshiping a man all of a sudden revere this man as God. But they suddenly start worshiping this man, Jesus. Why these same Jews who did not believe in a personal resurrection of the dead all of a sudden started believing in one. See, apart from this being true, how else do you explain any of that? The answer is you can't. And Jesus, uh, Jesus called that shot. He, in, in verses 6 and 7, the angels say, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. See, Jesus constantly told his disciples over and over again, This is the plan. I came to die. And Peter, who's one of the, the in crowd, even of the disciples, was like, no, Jesus, that's not, I'm never going to let that happen. And, and Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like, like the actual son of God called him Satan, <laughs> which is something to bounce back from, right? But Jesus had told them over and over and over again, this is the plan. And Paul says, if you're going to disprove Christianity, all you have to do is prove that Jesus stayed dead like literally every single other person in history. And here's the thing. I think we see from Peter here that Peter, Peter goes to the tomb and he sees it. And, and, and Luke tells us that he walked away marveling at what he had seen. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to make perfect sense. It doesn't necessarily have to completely connect in your head because what they saw, they marveled at. And in, in, in the same book um, that Keller wrote, The Hope in Times of Fear, uh, he quotes a John Updike poem, and, and it's really long, but I'm going to read uh, just the end of it. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of early ages. Let us walk through the door. That what Updike is saying here is, is it's actually mocking God to suggest that the resurrection is something other than an actual, real, physical, historical event. To say that it's simply an example or that it's simply a good lesson or teaching or something, that that's actually mocking God. That Jesus is alive. 
with a physical body. And if you, if you, read, if you read ahead uh, in Luke 24, you'll see in verses 36 through 49 where Jesus appears to his gathered disciples. And I actually think this is kind of funny. Um, Jesus shows up and his disciples are like, um, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, and, and Jesus is like, hey, do y'all have anything to eat? <laughs> Like, how many of us can relate to, like, doing something amazing and then just the only thing you think about is, like, I, I, got, I got to eat now, right? Um, that's that's low-key funny to me. But um, that's not even low-key. It's just actually funny. But the point is this. When you're dealing with the resurrection, when you are dealing with the resur- resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not dealing with a symbol or an analogy or a metaphor or a theory or a good idea. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus was, to quote Dwight Schrute, as dead as any animal that has ever died, and yet he is not dead anymore. And that's what's remarkable about the cross. It's not the torture, it's not the suffering, it is that he died for our sins. But what's remarkable about it is that he died for our sins and he is not dead anymore. And because that's true, this is the second point, because that's true, it changes everything. That nothing can be the same. Romans 6, 5 says that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, if Christ rose, then we will share with him in in that. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Right? In, in, in the passage, we're seeing it's a literal question. Like they're, Again, they're in a graveyard. But applied to us today, right now, why do we seek the living uh, among the dead? Because look, we're all seeking atonement for something. There's something deep in us that knows that we're not right. That there's something deep inside of us that knows that we're broken. Maybe, it's a, maybe we view it as a mental health issue. Or maybe we know that it's a, a sin issue. Or maybe it's something that's been done to us. And maybe we understand that it's a combination of all three. But we're looking for something to give us life in a world that can only offer us death. But the resurrection offers us hope. And it heals us in three ways. The first thing it does... Is it, is, it, is it heals our broken hearts. And uh, stop me if you've heard this before, but in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, there's, this, there's this scene, it's chapter 14, where uh, we see the, the, um, the white witch uh, kills Aslan on the stone table. And, and, and Lucy and Susan see it. They, they, they watch it happen. And they see Aslan's body tied up and lifeless on the stone table. And Lewis writes this. He says, I hope that no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt for these two. And I think this is such a, a powerful way of saying this because, because I think we've all been there to some degree, right? That we've laid there and we have, we, have, we have cried and we have hurt and we have longed and we had suffered. We have suffered to the point that it feels like nothing else can possibly happen. 
Think about the last two years, right? Pandemic, death, elections, protests, riots, police violence, church scandal, extreme othering. It just keeps going. The rabbit hole just gets deeper and deeper. And, and, and you guys have got this social media thing that is just constantly screaming at you that like, oh, it's, it's actually way worse than you thought. So not only is, is, is there just all this sad stuff happening in the world, all the, all the alternatives just feel sadder. You sit at home alone and you drink yourself until you're numb to it. You watch Netflix until you fall asleep with really fitful, unsatisfying sleep that barely even counts as sleep. You go work out until you just can't pick yourself up anymore. Porn, sex, working harder, uh, being less healthy. Uh, We numb it. We try to fix it with stuff that can't fix it. In other words, we are constantly looking for life in places that only offer death. But if this is true, right? If it's true that Jesus rose again from the dead, then there is something that can heal your broken heart. And it's so much better. And the resurrection actually frees you to feel and embrace your sadness because whatever sadness we are constantly confronted with is ultimately defeated as Jesus defeated death. It's not just shut up and look for the silver lining, but it's allowing yourself to feel the depth of a broken world, but to feel the hope that the resurrection of Christ offers to it. And right after the paragraph that we just read from Lewis, there's this beautiful paragraph where Lewis is describing Aslan's resurrection and the great line and the two girls are laughing and they're playing chase and they're just kind of enjoying Aslan not being dead. And Lewis writes this. He said, it was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together, panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. You see, even without them knowing the full extent of Aslan's victory, the girls already knew that their deepest longings were finally being met. You know, it's the same with us. When we encounter the resurrected Jesus, all of our broken hearts, all of the sadness, the disappointment, the depression, the anxiety, the hurt, all of that stuff that just kind of exists out there, and and even a lot of times we can't even put a finger on it, but we just know it's there. They are healed here. That if Jesus is really resurrected from the dead, then there really is hope that your broken heart can and will be healed. But the second thing it does is it heals your broken self. And spoiler alert, come back next week. We're going to look more closely at Peter um, and, and, and kind of Peter's undoing and redoing. But verse 12 tells us that Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes here for a minute. In Jesus' greatest time of need, Peter, one of Jesus' three closest friends, had denied him three times. And the third time, Jesus and Peter actually locked eyes. They made eye contact as Peter did it. 
And Luke tells us that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. Have you ever heard something that you just needed to be true? You heard it and something deep inside of you, even if you didn't fully understand it, you just needed it to be, you longed for it to be true. See, Peter, Peter had not fully grasped it yet, but the hope that Jesus might have actually been alive meant so much to him, right? It meant that his friend might not be dead, but it also meant that the single greatest failure of Peter's life might not define him forever. Don't you long for that? That thing that's in the back of your head that like the voice that just won't shut up or that moment that you just can't ever undo. Don't you long for it to not define you? There's something about us. There's something shameful that either has been done to us or has been done by us that we're afraid is gonna define us forever. And it's a deep need for every human heart, the need to atone for something, to make things right. And maybe you know what that is. Maybe you could point to the exact moment that it happened, or maybe it's just the needling feeling that you've somehow fallen short and you don't know what it is, so you'll do anything you can to numb it or run away from it or do anything you possibly can to make it right. That you're broken both by your own sin and by the effects of living in a sinful world and you don't know what to do about it. Y'all, the resurrection tells you that even death will not have the final say about you. Your sin will not define you. The things that were done to you will not define you. You will be healed. You will be made new. And when Paul tells us that we will share in a resurrection like Christ, part of what he means is that the darkest days of your life will not define you. I think we all need that. But the third thing it does is, is it heals our broken world. In Luke 24, 36, uh, Jesus shows up to his, his apostles and he greeted them, peace to you. That Jesus brings peace. All right, if you've been to RUF a couple of times, you know uh, there's this song that we like to sing, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, right? Um, it's a banger, as they say. Um, but... But, but the last verse of that song, it, it, it asks for, for Christ to bind us together and to bring shalom. We're asking for Jesus to bring us peace. And this actually, it's so much more than that because it's a whole new age that's happening. And Michael, uh, Michael Wilcock is a commentator that I, I love to read. Um, but he points out that the resurrection happening on the first day of the week is more than just like a chronological dating of when it happened. Uh, Luke is describing the beginning of a whole new era that on the sixth day, on the cross, the work of redemption was accomplished. On the seventh day, God rested. And on the first day, the new world began. And this is not simply a, a get out of jail free card or some kind of free pass to heaven, but it's a whole new reality. If you look at Revelation 21, uh, and again, on the Carson Newman RUF podcast, there's a great sermon on Revelation 21. Um, I don't know the preacher. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, just, I'm not plugging my podcast. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, I know. I, yeah, a little bit. Um, anyway, in Revelation 21, John looks up and what does he see? But he sees the new heavens and the new earth coming down. 
They're coming here. And he sees everything being made new. And it begins right here with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Lewis wrote of the stone table, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that even now, as hard as it is to see sometimes, that death itself is working backward. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, um, Colin, I know, where's Colin? What Christmas song is it you're trying to make the case? Is a yeah, so I think Joy to the World is actually like an all-the-time song, right? Because, because in Joy to the World, we sing, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That everywhere you look in creation and see the curse of sin and death, those are the places that are being made new. Those are the places that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our broken and dying world is actually being healed. And Romans 8, which I think is the most exciting chapter in the entire Bible, tells us that creation itself is longing to be renewed. And the promise of the resurrection is that it is. And so, if getting exactly what we want is more or less cause for hopelessness, then what's the answer? What do we do? We get more than what you knew that you wanted. Because there is something more out there. There is something that is more true and deeper than your greatest shame, your greatest disappointment, your greatest sin. And maybe the reason those things hurt so badly, maybe the reason that we cling to our grades or to our relationships or to whatever it is that we're clinging to or self-righteousness or work, whatever, is because we think that's the only chance that we have to be loved. Maybe the reason you can't get over um, you know, your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend is because that was the one chance that you had. There's actually nothing special about him or her. It's more you feel hopeless in not being lovable. Maybe, maybe that's what you're doing with your grades. That's why you cling to them so hard because if you don't get that A, then you're actually just not that valuable. And you can apply that to anything. But the resurrection tells us that there's something that is more meaningful, that is deeper than fame, deeper than grades, deeper than relationships. That the cross reminds us that we are far more sinful, far more broken, far more lost than we ever thought we were, but we are so much more deeply loved than we ever dared imagine. And because Jesus did not stay dead, he is alive and pursuing you and making you new, making you whole. And so because this is true, because Jesus rose again from the dead, Nothing that this world has to offer has the final say about you. He does. I love um, at the end of uh, Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings series, that um, there's going to be spoiler alerts here. These books have been out for like 70 years, so <laughs> it's on you if you don't know it yet. Um, but, but Frodo and Sam have... Uh, destroyed the ring in Mount Doom, and, and, they, and, they, and they think that's it. They think they're, they they're going to die. And yet they wake up in 
the healing, uh, the house of healing there in the city of Gondor. And the first person that Sam sees when he wakes up is Gandalf, who the last thing Sam had seen was Gandalf dying. And Sam says this, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of the Bible, the answer of Christianity, the answer of the resurrection is an emphatic yes. Everything sad is coming untrue. And because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, this work has already begun. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. Uh, Father, thank you for the truth of what we've read. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Lord, I know my heart needs to be reminded of this all the time. Lord, and I know it's true for my friends too. So I pray, Lord, for those of us who are here tonight that um, maybe we just needed to be reminded, God, would this be something uh, deep and beautiful and encouraging? Lord, would this show us how much you love us, how much power you have over our sin and over our lives, over our brokenness, Lord, that you you don't just see our actions, but you see the things that drive our actions and you wanna heal those too. Lord, maybe, uh, maybe some of us here tonight are believing it for the first time. Lord, I pray that uh, the truth of the resurrection would, would grip us and move us to love you and to follow you. Lord, thank you for uh, this night. Thank you for the beautiful weather we've had. I pray you'll be with us for these next few minutes as we discuss what we've heard. And Lord, would you, uh, would you guide our conversations? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.